filled with the Spirit already. Uh, Luke 24, not Luke 24, Matthew, man, Matthew 24 is parallel. We are in Luke 21, verses 25 through 38. Luke chapter 21, beginning verse 25, Jesus says, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people feigning with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. I've entitled this sermon, Future Realities. Because while many things about our future are uncertain, we know for sure that Jesus will return. There is more certainty than just death and taxes. We know this because Jesus foretold, I am going to die and I'm going to rise again. And it happened. He foretold, Jerusalem will be destroyed. And it happened in 70 AD. His word always comes true. And thus we can take his word and know that what he says about the future will happen. However, as we noted last week, as we look at this, Christians sometimes disagree. And yet that doesn't mean we just skip over and go, ah, this is just too confusing. We we can't really study this. No one's going to know. Jesus has given us a clear message, and we have to use our minds to understand it. As Alistair Begg often says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are are the main things. As you read through the Bible, if you find yourself focusing on all the not very clear things, then you're focusing on the wrong place. If there's something that's plain, that's because it's one of the main things of the Bible. And we need to focus on those main things because they're clear. Even a little child can understand the main message of the Bible. It's very plain. And yet there are issues. And where godly men, godly women can study and go, eh, it seems like this, and the other person, no, I don't know why you see it that way, it's this. And so we have to study. Another helpful phrase is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. There are essential things of the Christian faith, who Christ is, how we're saved, God's triune nature, that we have to say we are unified. There can be no disagreement because it is clear and plain. And yet there are some things that are not essential, in which we can say you have a liberty to disagree. And yet, whether it's a essential or unessential, we want to show charity or grace on all these issues. 
And as you know, this is especially important now as people are dealing with issues of race and as we're going to go into the fall and people that you love are going to say things that you go, how in the world do you believe that? How could you vote for him? How could you support that? And we need in all of that to focus on, well, what are the main things that I need to agree with with this person? What are some things that I go, I don't really agree, but that's okay. And no matter what, I'm going to show you charity in your position. I may disagree strongly, but when we leave, you should know that I disagreed with grace in what you're saying. So here, though, Jesus has given us three more clear truths about the future, about his return. We see in the first few verses, verses 25 through 28, that there's basically two different responses to Jesus' return. Then in verses 29 to 33, Jesus has a revelation of when he's going to return. And then lastly, in 34 through 38, he gives us a readiness plan for when he returns. You can see all that on the back of the bulletin. But let's just remember what's going on. Jesus has been in his last week. He's come in. The crowds have been chanting, Hail, King of David. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the disciples and the crowds think the restoration of Israel is upon us. And last week we saw as they're leaving the temple, the disciples go, Look at this beautiful building. And they think, this is it. We got the temple. We have the Messiah. We have the Son of David. Everything is going to happen. The world is going to the restoration of Israel and God's kingdom. And then Jesus says, no, it's going to be destroyed. Their minds are blown. Well, what? We're at the climax. What do you mean it's all going to be destroyed? Because he's showing them, look, his kingdom does not first come militarily or politically. It first comes spiritually. And they've missed that message. And so he warned them. Last week we saw the warnings about the destruction of, the Jerus- of Jerusalem. And you know, then he transitions in these verses to saying, that's not actually the end. Because they might think, well, pfft, okay, we're not at the kingdom. Well, then this is the end of the world. If Jerusalem's destroyed, it's over. And Jesus said, no, that's going to happen, but that's not the end yet. And we can notice this. Look at verse 24, because Jesus says, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So he's saying, look, there's this thing about Jerusalem, but that's not the end because there's this time of the Gentiles. But then notice verse 26. It talks about what is coming on the world. Not just Jerusalem, the whole world. Or we could see a similar thing in verse 35, talking about coming on the whole earth. And we see that people respond to this with great fear and foreboding. Why? Because it tells us in verse 25, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars in the earth and the distress of the nations because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. And Jesus here is, again, picking up language of the Old Testament prophets. A similar worded prophecy is told in Joel chapter 2, where it starts in the beginning of Joel chapter 2 of the day of the coming of the Lord. And then it says in verses 30 and 31, And I will show wonders in the heaven and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He's telling of this day, the day of the Lord when he comes. And yet the interesting thing is, Peter quotes that in Acts 2 to say that's when Jesus came already. So wait, wait, is this when Jesus came or is this when Jesus is coming? Yes. A helpful way to think about 
prophecies in the Bible is the way you might think about mountains. Now here we have Wichita Mountains, but I'm talking about real mountains, like in Colorado. So you're driving here, and you're going out to Colorado, and when you can start to see the mountains, what does it look like? It looks like a long row of mountains north to south. But then as you get there, and then you drive up in the mountains, you realize, oh, it's not just like a long, straight row of mountains. There's mountains farther in. And then when you get to that mountain, there's another mountain farther back, and there's mountains after mountains. From a distance, it looks like one thing. But when you get there, you see variation. It's a similar way with biblical prophecy. As you look from a distance from Joel 2, people go, oh, one thing, that's gonna, it's all going to happen at once. But then when you get to it, you realize there's, oh, Jesus is going to come the first time to offer mercy and grace to give his own life, and then he's going to come again for judgment. It all happens, but there's the mountains of it, and we have to see that. We even see, have seen something similar as Jesus has talked through Luke's gospel, as he's talked about the kingdom of God, because throughout he said, I have come to preach the good news of the kingdom. And he's told them of the good news of the kingdom. He even told them in chapter 10, verse 9, that is near them. In chapter 19, he condemns them because they missed the day of the king's visitation, is what is implied. And yet then we realize what Jesus also told his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come. He also said a parable in Luke 19 because they thought the kingdom was to come immediately. And so a helpful phrase in understanding the Bible and its prophecies is to realize there's an already aspect that has already been fulfilled, but there's a not yet that still needs to happen. Jesus can say the kingdom's already here because he's the king. He's here. But yet the kingdom is not yet fully here because he's going to come back. The mountain range of God's kingdom looks like one thing until we get up to it, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, as we saw last week. And so Joel's prophecy accurately saw the mountains, but the people didn't fully understand it till we got to it. And yet when this time comes, it will be so devastating, so intense, that people will collapse. I don't know about you, but imagine you're at your house and you turn the corner and there you see someone lifting your television and robbing your house. Now, some of you would go instant Hulk. Others might be Mary-like, pull out your pistol, drop them down between their eyes and go finish your coffee. Others may fall into the puddle you just made on the floor. Wow, what do I do? Well, here, these people are so terrified, they just collapse. We probably have all had intense moments in our life, but collapsing because it is so horrendous. Because they'll believe this must be the end of the world. And they'll be correct. And then Jesus will come, he says in verse 27, with a cloud and great power. He actually says, you will see the Son of Man coming. Now the Son of Man is a really interesting phrase because throughout the Bible it's used in kind of two ways. Beautiful Psalm, Psalm A is talking about when David looks at the heavens and all that God has made, and then he wonders, what is man that you remember him? And then he says, the son of man that you care for him. The son of man can be a generic term to refer to any person on earth. And yet son of man also has a specific meaning. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a person called the son of man, and it's said that this person will be presented before God, and that person will be given dominion over the entire universe, in an everlasting 
kingdom. Well, Jesus, as we've seen through Luke's gospel, often refers to himself as the Son of Man. For example, when he healed the paralytic, he first said, your sins are forgiven. And why? Well, he tells us, I said that so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So he's saying, look, I am the Son of Man. But it's this question, is Jesus just a Son of Man, a human? Or is he saying, I am the Son of Man? And as he always does, he's driving us to answer the question, who is he? How should I respond? And Jesus makes this clear. He doesn't have any doubt of who he is or who we should think he is because he then says he will come on a cloud. That's biblical language referring to God. Psalm 104, verse 3, God lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. In other words, Jesus, again, is implicitly saying, I am God. I'm not just the Son of Man. I'm also God himself. Yet it's fascinating, if you look at verse 28, there's not only this collapse of terror, there's also some who are going to be eager, waiting for him to come. And Jesus calls us to be stand, to stand and be ready because our redemption is near. Now, redemption here is not being used in the kind of narrow sense of being saved from the penalty of your sins. It's being used in the broad sense of what was read earlier in Romans chapter 8. For the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of the world where every effect of sin is removed. That's what we're longing for. Because when Jesus returns, he will fix every aspect of this broken universe. Every abusive relationship will immediately end. Every cycle of poverty and dysfunction will cease. Every bitter word, vengeful action, and wicked oppression will halt in its tracks. Every misunderstanding, every twisting and distortions of words will stop. Every disease, disaster, and death will be averted, for the Son of Man has returned. Thus Jesus begins by telling of this horrible time. However, it leads to two radically divergent responses. Either collapsing in terror or rejoicing in delight. It's kind of fascinating when you think about the movies we love to watch and how we love to have drastic but tameable futures. You know, movies love to show massive Orkian armies so deep that you could never defeat them. Massive ships, so many, ruled by an emperor by such a power that nothing can be done. There is no hope. And yet the hero always comes at the last minute and saves things. Yet what is it about us that loves this? We love to see big, climatic events. And yet we always want to hold out hope. I think because in each of us, we know there is something much bigger and much greater than us and that we should be afraid of it. And yet the hope is not in anything we can do. Jesus is showing the hope is when we turn from ourselves and look forward to him. As we've already said, he came the first time to deal with sins. 
But he's going to return again. Hebrews 9, 28 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Does that describe you? Eagerly waiting. Christmas-like anticipation. Is it coming? I want it to be here. Are we eagerly waiting? Well, Jesus now gives us a revelation of when he will return. We see that in verses 29 through 33. And basically, he just uses this analogy of what's in front of him. He says, look, you see this fig tree, you see any tree, and trees that lose their leaves every year, what happens? They go to winter, they lose all their leaves, and they stand there all bleak and dark. And yet then, when spring comes, new leaves burst out. And these new leaves show you that it's spring and summer is right around the corner. And thus he's saying, look, when you see all of this, you will know the end is here. It's just like you know spring and summer is upon us. Jesus then says, I truly say to you that by no means will this generation pass away until all these things will be. I don't know how that sentence strikes you for many. That's a, ooh, did Jesus just kind of misspeak? Because that generation has passed and the end did not come. Now, for many that is, they go, well, this is just another in the litany of evidences that Jesus was not God. He didn't know what he was talking about. Except the interesting thing about that is most often, though not always, the people who hold that also claim that really the New Testament is just a collection of what the disciples believed about Jesus. The Jesus of faith, you might hear. Because there's the Jesus of history, we're told, and then there's the Jesus of faith, what the disciples later wrote back into the Gospels because they wanted to believe that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God, but he never actually said that or the claim is made. However, if all that's true, at some points we just have to realize the disciples were incredibly stupid. Like, they know that Jesus said this, and they know it actually didn't happen, but they just left it in anyways because we didn't know how to clean up our mistakes enough. Or could it be that maybe they left it there because that's what Jesus said? And maybe, though it is hard to understand, maybe it doesn't mean exactly what we think on first reading of it. And we're going to answer, well, what does it mean? And I'm going to tell you I don't know. But let's, before we get to that, notice a couple other preliminary things that we need to realize about the Gospels. And that is that Luke, in this section, records it differently than Matthew and Mark. Now, no gospel gives us all the details of the life of Jesus and his teaching. And each of them purposefully did that to fit their message. Now, that shouldn't surprise us as though they're distorting and twisting it. It's what happens every single day when you write about any event. If you pick up 10 newspapers after the Super Bowl, you're going to read 10 very similar but different accounts of what happened. Because each one of them is focusing either on the MVP or how this team made a fatal mistake or how the coach made this blunder. They're all talking about the same thing, but different angles. They don't all tell an exhaustive story. It's impossible to do that. In fact, even in John's gospel, he says, look, if we wrote down everything Jesus did, well, there's not enough room in the world to contain it all. You consider even the fact, as we read, verse 37, every day Jesus is going to the temple. He's teaching at least three days in the temple, sun up to sun down. Now, if you're nerdy like me, 
you track the amount of time it takes to say a certain amount of words. So it might roughly take 40 minutes to say 5,000 words, so that might be a good goal to aim for. Now, if you take the longest sermon here of Jesus, of this sermon, it's from Matthew's Gospel. It's in Matthew 24. Well, if you add Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, which isn't necessarily part of it, all of that together is 2,105 words. In other words, if Jesus said that sermon straight, it would take probably about 20 minutes. So here we have 20 minutes of what Jesus said when he spoke for at least three days. This is clearly a summary. And it's pretty logical to think that at some point someone said, hey, Jesus, can you go back? Because I'm still not understanding what you meant about Jerusalem being destroyed. And so then Jesus restated it. He summarized it. He explained it a different way. And then the next day when Jesus comes again, someone just says, hey, could, could you again, I'm sorry, I just, we thought you were here to restore Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed. Can you, could you say it a different way? So he says it again, slightly different, with the same meaning. And the point is, as you read through the Gospels, don't be surprised when Matthew says it this way, and then Luke says it, but slightly different. They're not wrong. It's the fact that Jesus was a normal person, and he repeated himself, and he summarized himself, and he changed things. Not to change because this was wrong and this was right, because you have a question. Let me explain that in a slightly different way. You know, to claim variations are clear errors in the Bible is to not understand the basic way people communicate and the basic way people record things. Thus, for example, if you come to the accounts of the resurrection, you read in one that Mary went and talked to an angel, and then you see in another, there were two angels. You don't need to conclude, ah, oh, the first one was wrong. Well, the fact that Mary spoke to one does not deny that another could have been there. It's that none of them is giving a fully exhaustive account. They are both completely true, but they're both from their perspective, and they both are purposefully not being exhaustive. And so we have to realize that as we read these things. A second really important thing to realize as we dive into this passage and what it's saying is that Mark 13 and Matthew 24 show us some of Jesus' other words. One other thing Jesus said in this sermon is that the Son of Man does not know the day or hour this is going to happen. Now that in and itself is a mystery, that the Son of God laid aside some of his privileges so that he doesn't know all things in his humanity. And Jesus also said, look, the end is not going to occur, this is in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, until the gospel has gone into the whole world. So would Jesus have said, the gospel's got to go into the whole world, I don't know what it is, and yet that's actually going to happen in this generation, meaning literally 40 years. Well, either you have to say Jesus can't keep himself straight within a 10-minute conversation, or he meant something else. So what did he mean? If you know, come tell me afterwards. But what I think it means is possibly three things. Most likely, I think it's the third. So if you really want to hold on to what I think it means, I think it's the third. But first, Jesus has been going back and forth between talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and then later. And he says, when is all this going to occur? Well, the, his whole conversation began in verse 6, as for these things. Perhaps Jesus is saying this generation and referring back 
to the destruction of Jerusalem. And that would be true. Within that generation, the destruction of Jerusalem happened. Now, I don't think that's as clear from Luke, though I think you could more clearly in Matthew and Mark get that view. A second option is, this is, again, language of prophecy. It's kind of the mountain's perspective. Jesus is saying in this time, because when this happens, it's really saying it's all going to happen. As a parent, one of the things you learn early on is you don't always tell your kids about future events. Because then you get asked, is that going to happen today? Are we coming? Are they coming today? And after a while, you finally say, look, before grandma and grandpa come, we're going to finish this week. Then we're going to go to church. And then we're going to go out to eat. And then we're going to have our normal Monday. And then they're going to come Tuesday. Okay? So unless X, Y, and Z has happened, they're not coming that day. You got it? And then they ask you on Saturday, are they here? Have we gone to church yet? No. Okay, they aren't coming. Okay, Monday, are, are they here? It's Monday. We said not till Tuesday. Okay, okay. And then Tuesday they go, are they coming? Yeah, you know what? Everything has happened. It's going to happen soon. It's going to happen really quick because everything that needed to happen, it's done. Everything that Scripture needs to happen for Christ to return because of his death and resurrection, it's like we're at the mountain. He could come back at any time. It's going to be soon. And perhaps that's what he means. But I really think, in my opinion, though there's godly men and women who disagree, I think Jesus is using another way to use the word generation. It's kind of the idea of a group or race. And we see this in Luke 16, 8. He's giving a parable there, and he talks about, you know how to deal with the men of your, Ganea is the word, generation, or age or race. He's talking about, you know how to deal with the people of your type, of who you are? And this isn't just used in Luke 16.8. Uh, if you read the Old Testament during this time, most likely you would have read a Greek translation. It was called the Septuagint. And four times in the Septuagint, this word is used in that concept, in that idea that it means a race or a group. Now, why would Jesus be saying this then? Well, remember what he just said, verse 24, the times of the Gentiles are going to come. They're going to destroy the temple so they might be thinking well the jews we're done we're 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 finished because it's going to be the gentiles time and he's saying no 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 the end's not going to come until your group is still going to be here all the way to the end you're not going to be done away with your group will be here all the way until i return so i don't think you should read this and then go jesus is (laughs) Really doesn't know what he's saying. There are many clear reasons why that would be him being illogical based on what he said in the other Gospels. And there's many good reasons why that doesn't have to mean that in the first place. And even Jesus clearly thinks he's speaking the truth because verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my world's words by no means will pass away. He's alluding to Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Now notice again, Jesus is again implying my words are just like God's. Because I'm not just a son of man. I'm the son of man who has come. The king has come upon you. The kingdom is here. And so again, I think we're forced. As Lewis, C.S. Lewis famously said, we either have to come to grips that Jesus was just a liar Or he was a lunatic because he didn't know what he was talking about. 
Well, he's the Lord of the universe. And yet the point of this is not that we end, we go home, and oh, we scratch our heads. Oh, wait, we know what generation means. It's not so that we can win theological debates. Jesus says all this so that we might be ready. And we see that in verses 34 through 38. He has a readiness plan for his return. You know, we as a society, we want to be ready. Our federal government runs a website entitled ready.gov. And if you go on there, you can find different readiness plans to make sure you're ready for each and every scenario that could happen in life. They include instructions how to prepare for 31 different disasters that could occur. In case you are concerned this morning for how to deal with space weather, they got a plan. Now, you might be wondering what space weather is. I was too. It's when there's a sudden burst of plasma and magnetic field structures from the sun's atmosphere that together with sudden burst of radiation or flares cause space weather effects on Earth, such as in 1859, they sent storms with electrical currents through telegraph lines, shocking technicians and setting some telegraph papers on fire. Or in 1989, there's a space storm that caused a blackout in Canada, leaving 6 million people without power for nine hours. So, are you ready for space weather? Go to ready.gov. I'm not paid for that statement. Or, if someone were to come to Wichita Falls and use a radiological dispersion device, you could be ready if you go to ready.gov. And they go through all of these things, and they do have some common ones, fire and flooding, but such detail over things that are probably never going to happen. But you know, there's one thing they never put on there. Death. They never say, let's prepare you for the one thing that's going to happen to literally every single person. Not a word. Now, uh, on some level, we can say, okay, it's the government. It's not their role. That's maybe moving. But they're trying to prepare for some pretty obscure stuff. Some things that have only happened maybe twice in the last two centuries. And yet the most important thing that we are going to be faced with is silence. At some point in our lives, we are either going to die or Jesus will return. There's no other option. You know, I've been at funerals for infants who were tragically smothered. I've gone to infants for, I've gone to funerals for people who just went to take a nap, never woke up. I've gone to funerals for people who are driving to their vacation and never made it to their destination. I've had people I know who died on their way to skydive, who accidentally choked themselves, who had their car flipped. And tragically, we can even think over the last two weeks of people who've died by police, who've died in riots, who've died in so many ways. And not a single one of them woke up and said, this is it, this is my last day. They all woke up thinking it was like any other day. And yet they had to be ready. And thus Jesus warns his disciples that they must always pay close attention to themselves. They have to pay close attention because there's things that will distract us. He uses the language of drink and the cares of life. It's basically what's right now, that's what's grabbing my attention. It could be the next party, the next game, the next movie, the next book the next stage in my life, or the next stage in my kid's life, or the next, the next. And we're always living for 
something here. What's next? What's next? And we never think beyond that to, well, one day there's going to be no next except being before him. Jesus has warned of this throughout his gospel. He told of it earlier, the gospel of the sower and the seeds, and he says of the seed that was thrown on the thorny ground, it grew up. Oh, yes, we love God. They're, oh, yes, excited about God, and then the cares of life. Same phrase, choked it out. And so he's saying, watch out that what's going on in this world is not choking you out and you don't abide in him. Because he warns in verse 35, it's going to come suddenly like a trap, like a thief in the night we know in other places. And so we must always be vigilant. What does that vigilance look like? Well, he tells us in verse 36, praying, prayer, the hardest spiritual discipline but the most important to pray that we might have strength to escape and to be ready to stand before him and so we need to pray for one another because we do all have this pull to the things of this earth and christ and we need to constantly be encouraging exhorting and pointing each other to what matters yet the chapter now ends what I would call the eye of the storm. Because Jesus is going to the temple every day and teaching. You know, he entered in the storm when he first came in Jerusalem. Attack, attack, attack by the religious leaders. And now all seems peaceful. But we know that's not all it's going to be. Because on the other edge of this eye, you can even look down, there's going to be a plot to kill Jesus. Judas is going to betray him. And then he is going to go through the storm. The violent, harsh and sudden storm. And yet before he goes through, he's trying to prepare us so that when he comes again, when there's a future storm, we would be ready. And what did he do to prepare? He went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. He came before God asking for strength. And so he encourages us to be praying and eager to stay focused on what matters. And so as we see from Jesus' exhortation. The goal of these teachings is primarily that each of us might be ready for Him. Yes, we should think about, well, how does this fit with that passage and that passage and this truth? We should wrestle with those things, but that's not the end goal of knowing all this. The end goal is that we might then live lives of preparedness. Max Stiles tells of how in the Soviet Union they were having a major problem with employees of the state, everyone was an employee of the state, stealing stuff from the government. And so the government started putting more guards, and yet there was one plant where they had a lot of problems. There was a plant where they made um, electronics. And so they put various guards there. But it was real hard because electronics, you can slip in a crevice or of your jeans or your pocket. So the guards had to be really careful. But there was one guard who came, Popoff. He was really friendly, and he got to know everyone, and he would just chat with people as they came in and out. And then one day, just a basic worker, Yuri, came out with a wheelbarrow and a bunch of sawdust. And Popov said, Yuri, come on, what, what, what's going on? And Yuri just said, oh, nothing, just taking this load of sawdust to the trash. You can check it, go ahead. So Popov, he sifted through and nothing. Okay, go ahead, Yuri. A week later, Yuri comes up with another wheelbarrow full of sawdust. Go ahead, check. You can check. Nothing. Weeks go into months, and 
about once a week, here he comes with the wheelbarrow. And finally, Popoff is going, I, what's he doing? He's doing something. And so he comes up with a new approach. And Yuri comes up with his wheelbarrow, and he says, okay, Yuri, not security guard to state employee, friend to friend. What are you stealing? And Yuri looks down, looks up, and he says, well, friend to friend, I'm stealing wheelbarrows. The whole time, he was so focused on the minutia, sifting through that he missed the big picture. And we can do that. We get stuck in the minutia of Scripture, the minutia of life, everything going on. I got this event. I got that. I got to figure this out. And we never stop and go, look at the wheelbarrow. What's it all about? What's carrying it all through? What's carrying you through life? Focus not on the sawdust, Jesus is saying. Focus on what is holding it all together. Focus on Him so that you might be ready. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we get caught up in everything going on. We get so focused on even the details of the sawdust, and we forget you. Lord, would we be ready? Lord, we thank you that our readiness is not ultimately up to you, is that you, through your Son, came. That he was the King who took our sins, so that when he returns, we can eagerly rejoice, rather than cower in dread, because we know our sin has created a barrier before you. Oh, Lord, even now, may we not be focused on what will happen this afternoon, but may we delight and focus on you. And may we go to whatever is next with joy, knowing that it's what you have for us, and we can serve you in it. It's in your son's name we pray.